transmitting live from the heart of Times Square on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series examining how President Donald J. Trump and his administration are changing the world we live in. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Congress has 10 days left to pass a bill that will fund our government, protect our homeland, and secure our very dangerous southern border. Now is the time for Congress to show the world that America is committed to ending illegal immigration and putting the ruthless coyotes, cartels, drug dealers, and human traffickers out of business. That was President Trump addressing the Congress, the Supreme Court, his cabinet, and the American people on Tuesday night in his second State of the Union address. Like all the clips we'll hear tonight, it's been slightly edited to remove applause breaks. The president's speech in the U.S. Capitol building was held a week later than usual, the result of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refusing to extend the traditional invitation to the president to address the Congress while the government was still shut down. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. While all week White House officials had been leaking versions of the speech that were considerably more restrained than President Trump is known to be in his rhetoric, what ended up in the final version of his second State of the Union address sounded a lot more like red meat for the base than an effort to shift the tone in Washington. Although the president stopped short of declaring a national state of emergency over the situation at the southern border in his speech, his charged language on hot-button issues like immigration, abortion, and the Mueller investigation did not seem like much of a shift towards bipartisan agreement. Tonight on Trump Watch, we'll look at what could be driving the combative tone of the president's second State of the Union address with Gabby Orr. We spoke just before this broadcast. Joining me now is Gabby Orr, White House reporter for Politico. Hello, Gabby. Welcome back to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for joining us one more time. Thanks for having me. We're going to get into some of the specifics and play some clips of Trump's State of the Union address in a moment. But before we do, was there anything that stood out to you in the speech beyond, of course, the news that as you reported for Politico, there will be a second summit with Kim Jong-un? Well, I think the overall tone of the speech, uh, though we expected it to be a unifying speech, one in which the president hit on a number of possible uh, areas of bipartisanship, um, the overall tone was kind of surprising to me in that it really did uh, hew closely to what he said in his status address last year. I mean, there wasn't much daylight outside of the policy specifics um, just in terms of the language that he used to describe, you know, this um, broad determination to recreate American greatness, to come together, to unify, to resist um, the temptation to sort of uh, retreat to various partisan corners. I mean, that was really the overall tone of the speech, and it very much resembled what he said last year in terms of wanting to be one American family um, and talking about all of the different things that his administration has done to, uh, in, in his words, you know, bring the country together. 
Right. The White House signaled to reporters in the days before the State of the Union that President Trump would be taking a more bipartisan tone in the speech, as reported by NPR's Jessica Taylor and others. But uh, with his repeated characterization of a crisis at the border and uh, calls for a federal law banning late-term abortion, like you said, this didn't sound like a bipartisan speech to my ears either. Uh, So what do you think the president was hoping to achieve here? Well, he was sort of balancing the need to reconnect with his base, um, reconnect with voters who may have supported him in the 2016 election but have become either disaffected because of the recent government shutdown or have just turned off by some of his rhetoric and and the frequency of his disruptive tweets and whatnot. Um, And he he had to balance that with the, uh, like you were saying, that the unifying rhetoric that the White House had previewed, that he, you know, is off just coming out of this 35-day government shutdown. Um, His administration is sort of sitting idly by right now as Congress works to try and negotiate a deal to avoid a second shutdown uh, or an emergency declaration. And although he wants to satisfy his base by mentioning that he's, you know, very much committed still to getting a border wall, getting increased um, funding for border security, um, to all of these other issues that he brought up last night, uh, at the same time, he recognizes that in the year ahead, especially heading into uh, a re-election campaign, he will have to either work with Democrats or really have nothing to show for when it comes to 2020. Okay, let's get into some clips from the speech now. President Trump did make at least a few attempts to find common ground with the Democrats in last night's State of the Union address, uh, such as in this excerpt here. I know that Congress is eager to pass an infrastructure bill. And I am eager to work with you on legislation to deliver new and important infrastructure investment, including investments in the cutting-edge industries of the future. This is not an option. This is a necessity. The next major priority for me and for all of us should be to lower the cost of health care and prescription drugs, and to protect patients with pre-existing conditions. So building infrastructure and lowering health care prices are obviously two things most Democrats would love to do. Do you believe there's any chance for bipartisan movement on either of these two issues? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm pretty cynical at this point because it's not like, uh, you know, talking about an infrastructure package, talking about um, decreased pharmaceutical drug prices is something that was just mentioned in last night's State of the Union address. This is, these are two topics that the president has been talking about uh, working with Democrats on for the past two years. I mean, early on in his in his administration, he was taking meetings with Elijah Cummings, the uh, Demo- then then the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, who has long been a champion um, for legislation that would uh, reduce the cost of drugs. And you know that nothing really came of it ever. Um, even though his administration and, and the president himself continued to say that they were eager to work with Democrats on this. Uh, same thing goes with infrastructure. We had the infamous Infrastructure Week when uh, the White House was 
spending, you know, every single day pushing a message through surrogates and through the president himself, um, that they were committed to passing a trillion-dollar uh, bipartisan infrastructure package. Um, but the details of that were not compatible with what Democrats had suggested. But um, President Trump really wanted to um, create a public-private partnership that wasn't widely accepted among Democratic lawmakers and thus sort of prevented this bipartisan package from moving anywhere. And I didn't really hear in last night's speech um, any new details that would indicate that his administration is moving closer to actually notching a deal on either of these issues. Um, only that he remains committed to working toward a solution of some kind. Getting back to the anti-abortion rhetoric in the president's address last night, let's listen back to what he said about that issue right now. Lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. These are living, feeling, beautiful babies who will never get the chance to share their love and their dreams with the world. And then we had the case of the governor of Virginia, where he stated he would execute a baby after birth to defend the dignity of every person. I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late term abortion of children who can feel pain in the mother's womb. This is obviously very charged language uh, coming from President Trump. Um, Gabby or Politico, what do you think is behind his decision to include this uh, particular statement on abortion in the State of the Union? And what does it tell us about the agenda or priorities behind his language? Well, we reported uh, last week that Trump had been paying attention to this uh, late-term abortion law in New York and that he had uh, caught word of what Governor Ralph Northam had said about a late-term abortion bill that might be making its way through the Virginia state legislature soon. And he sort of viewed both of these items as an opening to energize his evangelical supporters. Um, and he was telling aides last week, you know, I want to include this in my State of the Union address. I'd like to go hard on um, pro-life language. So these are things that we sort of knew were coming. But it was even surprising last night to hear the actual language that was incorporated. I mean, you just heard that clip where he says that the Virginia governor um, had endorsed a bill that would allow for the execution of babies after birth. Um, if you go back and you look at the comments that Ralph Northam made, um, he never said that he would endorse the you know postnatal execution of, of young babies. Um, he did endorse a bill that would allow for late-term abortions in certain instances where a fetus is not viable or um, a mother's health is at risk. But that was really a, an exaggeration for the president and one that was um, definitely intended to capture the attention of uh, Christian conservatives, evangelical voters, and even some moderates who might be turned off by um, these, these two late-term abortion bills that have gotten a lot of attention in the press recently. I'm speaking with Gabby Orr, White House reporter for Politico, 
You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. Uh, Gabby, perhaps the most memorable phrase to come out of Trump's second State of the Union address was the line that to have, quote, peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. Let's listen to that now. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. We must be united at home to defeat our adversaries abroad. Beyond the obvious links to President Nixon's 1974 speech to a joint session of Congress imploring members that one year of Watergate is enough, as detailed in a new Washington Post piece by Philip Bump, this seems to be a new tactic for the president to equate peace with ending special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into his campaign's ties to Russia. Do you agree with that assessment? And what do you believe the president is aiming to achieve by framing the investigation in this light? Well, I don't I don't necessarily know that he's, you know, connecting, drawing a connection between peace and the end of the Mueller investigation. Um, I think that he absolutely wants this to come to an end before we really get into the weeds of the 2020 election, um, because it does create you know, this this cloud of uncertainty that is currently hanging over uh, the president and and many of his senior aides, um, if that continues into the upcoming election cycle, it's really going to present problems. And so I think that this is probably more aimed at um, the sort of underlying message that we heard last night about 2020. You know, he talked about how democratic investigations are undermining um, economic prosperity that has come about under his administration. Uh, he didn't really offer any concrete examples of how that's happening, but that was a part of that line, you know, peace and legislation versus um, investigations. And I'm blanking on the other phrase right now. Um, and then in addition to that, I mean, we, we, he spent a significant portion of his speech um, sort of criticizing the uh, socialist policies that some 2020 Democratic contenders um, and freshman Democrats have outlined in the past few weeks. Uh, that was really a failed attempt to sort of outline his messaging heading into a presidential cycle where he's going to be uh, contrasting his, you know, hyper-capitalist um, populist vision with um, all of these these proposals that are being laid out by uh, Democratic presidential aspects. Right. This was the president's flat assertion that the United States has never stood for socialism. Correct. That, that we are a, a free country and, and will remain free. There, uh... I think is how you put it. <laughs> 
There were a lot of different policy areas covered in Trump's 82-minute State of the Union address, the third longest in history, with number one still belonging to Bill Clinton for his 89-minute address in 2000. Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour clocked it as 29 different individual policy areas, topics that the president devoted time to in his second State of the Union. How effective do you think President Trump was in conveying his policy agenda do you think anything stuck here uh, in the general citizen's mind? I think, you know, if you were somebody who tuned into that speech last night, who maybe doesn't pay attention uh, normally to cable news and, um, you know, regularly to politics, I do think that there was a part of that speech that probably stuck with you. Um, and I, I think that that was most of his rhetoric on uh, you know, unifying the country, being, bringing people together, working with Democrats, um, resisting uh, some of the so-called socialist policies that he spoke about. I mean, I think there was something there that was probably very attractive to the average voter. Um, but at the same time, you know, just being in Washington and, and sort of parsing through all of the policies that he outlined last night, as I mentioned earlier, you know, things like infrastructure, things like um, reforming pharmaceutical drug prices, those aren't new. And most everybody in the House chamber last night um, has heard the president talk about that before. And so it, it just it didn't really carry much weight. Um, he's, he's spoken about these things repeatedly, but um, to borrow one of his favorite phrases, it's sort of an all talk, no action. We haven't really seen anything um, in terms of, you know, achieving big bipartisan results aside from the first uh, step act, the, the Criminal Justice Reform Act that was signed into law uh, last year. The Democrats asked former candidate for governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams, to uh, give the rebuttal to the president's speech. Uh, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra gave a rebuttal for the Dems in Spanish. Bernie Sanders also gave a rebuttal, something that Stephen A. Crockett Jr. of The Root felt was an attempt to overshadow Abrams. Do you think any of these rebuttals offered an effective counter to the Trump agenda or break through uh, to the public consciousness? I think the Abrams... Um rebuttal was the one that most people paid attention to. It was very um, cleanly delivered. There were no gaps, as, as we've seen in the past from some Democrats who have done this. Um, the setting was well done. She spoke clearly and definitively. Um, she outlined a, a very distinct message um, and, and responded, you know, point by point to what the president said. Um, I, I do think that that was effective. I, I would have liked to have heard more from those Democrats who did offer rebuttals um, about some of the foreign policy aspects that President Trump mentioned in his speech. Uh, I think that was maybe lacking um, in, in all of those uh, responses to his State of the Union address. One of the things that Abrams brought up that the president didn't was the amount of federal workers affected by the shutdown just a few weeks ago, I joined volunteers to distribute meals to furloughed federal workers. They waited in line for a box of food and a sliver of hope since they hadn't received paychecks in weeks. Making livelihoods of our federal workers a pawn for political games is a disgrace. The shutdown was a stunt engineered by the President of the United States 
one that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. Was this the president's way of moving on, or did he miss an opportunity to those who were affected by the 35-day federal shutdown to perhaps offer encouragement or even apologies? It's definitely something that a lot of people probably would have liked to have heard in his speech last night. Um, You're right, he he didn't once touch on the... um, financial struggles that many of these federal workers who were furloughed for almost, um, you know, over a month uh, that they endured during that shutdown, um, it it probably would have been a good way for him to sort of offer an apology for uh, his role, at least, in in causing the government to shut down for that long um, and to connect it to the sort of call for unity and bipartisanship that he really was aiming for in that speech last night. The president didn't call a state of emergency over what he describes as an illegal immigration crisis at the U.S. southern border. Do you get a sense if that's off the table or still something the Trump administration is considering? It's definitely something that's still being discussed inside the White House. Um, We've been covering this extensively, including, you know, the fact that they're still working out the kinks of Um, an emergency declaration or the use of executive authority to get a border wall built. Um, There's currently three different proposals that are sort of being vetted by the White House Counsel's Office, and um, it's, you know, still very much on the table and something that Trump could do um, as early as next week if it doesn't seem like Congress is going to broker a deal by the February 15th deadline. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Brian. I've been speaking with Gabby Orr, White House reporter for Politico. You're listening to Trump Watch. My name is Jesse Lent. And that's it for this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 104 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at SoundCloud.com slash Trump Watch WBAI, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and join us again next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down a different aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Tell her I wouldn't have any other way.
But when you see my baby This is what you say Tell her I'll be happy 